0: You should know the books of the Bible by now, at least the books of the New Testament. So we'll do that one more week, and then after that we'll do the Old Testament song. When you're thinking about memorizing the books of the Bible, remember the Gospels are pretty easy, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you have the one historical book in the New Testament, which is Acts. So you can go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Acts and then you get into the epistles you have romans it's always the first one and then first and second corinthians and then you get galatians ephesians philippians and colossians those are all together so you have romans first and second corinthians galatians ephesians philippians colossians and then you get the five t's first and second thessalonians and then first and second Timothy and then Titus and Philemon, and now you've got those are all the Pauline epistles. What comes after Philemon? Hebrews and James, then first and second. Then you have first and second. You got first, and second Peter, first, second, third John, Jude, Revelation. Very good. So we have our little song. So let's sing our little song together. You got it ready, Eddie? Three things are important when you're doing Bible study. The first is to read, 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 read. That's why I'm emphasizing read through James every day. All five chapters shouldn't be too hard. Read through James. Now, this time, what I want you to do is start making notes. You know, a lot of different ways you can make notes. You can make notes in your Bible. You can come up with different interesting ways to uh, tag your own text. You can underline. You can draw squares. If you can do. A lot of different things. You can write notes. You can put a question mark uh, next to something you're not sure you understand. You want to go back and look at later. Uh, you can draw lines halfway across the page connecting two concepts. A lot of different ways you can write notes in your Bible, or you can just have, uh, you know, three by five cards. You can have a spiral notebook. You can have loose leaf. Whatever works for you. You can have a little notebook and write down. Uh, what your thoughts are as you're reading through the text. And so you read and you record, and then we reflect. We think about what the text says and what are the connections, and we bombard the text of Scripture with different questions. Now, what kind of questions do we ask? This, is, this is, sounds pretty basic. It's the, the basic questions, who, what, when, where, and why expanded a little bit in terms of the Bible. So we want to ask who, in two senses, who's the author of the passage? Who's writing? In the New Testament, is it Paul or Peter, James, John? Who wrote Hebrews? We don't know. Second question, to whom is the writer speaking? Are they believers or are they unbelievers? Are they Jewish, primarily Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians? Uh, are they people that the author knows personally or people he doesn't know personally? Paul writes First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, and he had just visited the church on the uh, second missionary journey, and he comes to Corinth, and he gets questions from Timothy and Titus, and so he writes a letter back. So there's a Close personal connection there. He knows the people to whom he is writing. But when he gets to Ephesus later on, the third missionary journey, and he's writing an epistle to the Romans, he's never been there. He might know one or two people that are in the church at Rome, but he doesn't know them. He doesn't have a personal connection with them. We have no idea about the writer of Hebrews because we don't know who wrote it, and we don't know who he's writing to. We can infer certain things from the text, but but not a lot. We ask, when was it written? What was the historical context in which it was written? Uh, we asked questions of the passage. What are the most important terms or concepts in the verse or in the passage? Uh, do any words need explanation or definition? If we have words like the Holy Spirit, we need to define that. We have words like, uh, <clears throat> or we have certain words like Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria in Acts 1 8. Where do we go to get information about those words? Are there any people we need to identify? Are there any names mentioned that we're uncertain about? We need to identify the location of the places mentioned. That's why we have an atlas or in a study Bible. You can go look in the back in the maps in the back of the study Bible. You can then ask questions. What's their historical significance? What's the historical significance of Jerusalem? What's the historical significance of Judea? What's the historical significance of Samaria? And what's going on in Samaria at that time as opposed to what's going on in Judea at that time? Are there any uh, cause-effect relationships within the passage? Are there any conclusions to draw? Uh, Are there any details that need further study? Uh, we also need to ask what how this relates to the context. And when we look at something like Acts one eight, starts off, "...but you shall receive power." The key word there is what? The first word, but. It tells us immediately it's not an independent sentence. It's related. It's part of a sentence. And the sentence actually began in verse 7, "...when Jesus said, "'It's not for you to know times or seasons "'which the Father has put in his own authority, "'but you shall receive power.'" How is you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, a contrast to it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. So that's the context. How does verse 8 relate to the context of verses 7 and 8? And verses 7 and 8 are in a broader context, and that's the context of the conversation that the disciples are having with Jesus, starting in verse 4. They're assembled together with him, and he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise from the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. So the context of 4 through 8 is different from the context of 1 through 3 and what happens in 9 and 11 when Jesus shoots up to heaven in the ascension. What are the key parts of speech? What's your main verb? What's your main, what, what is your subject? What is your What's the object? What's the direct object? What's the indirect object? Uh, Who performs the action? And who receives the action of the verb? Now, I'm going to get out of this, and I want to go to a YouTube video. We got more observation fun. I want to run by three of these. We always resize over here. Okay. Now, y'all ready? You got to pay attention. This is a test. How many times does the white Turn team pass the rubber band ball? Okay, let's start over. This is a test. How many times does the white team pass the rubber band ball? Go. at 13 passes, you are correct. But did you see the black belt gorilla? The Your obvious doesn't miss the obvious with SAP's powerful new CRM identifying okay. key trends and acting on Okay, how many of you all saw the black belt gorilla? One, two, three. Very good. It's, it's the obvious things that are there. Yeah, it's a little dark so I couldn't see the black belt, but I knew there was a gorilla there. Okay, now we go to another one. Now, this one's a little trickier, and it's a little longer. It's a seven-minute clip, and you really have to pay attention to this, and you might want to write something down, okay? So be ready. Okay. I want to read the description before we start. Okay, watch the three video clips and answer the five questions that follow each clip based on the things that you see or hear in the video. 15 questions in total. Okay, the first clip is on Pixar's knickknack, the second clip is from Coldplay Life in Technicolor 2 music video, and the third clip is Mark Webber uh, F1 on London streets. You won't hear music like this on at Bi- West Houston Bible Church too often. No, tell us your answers. Write down your answer What was the third thing the snowman used to try and escape the snow globe? Fourth, what does the skeleton have written on his surfboard? And fifth, how many knickknacks are there on the desk altogether? Okay, now we go to the second clip. Is it time for some music, boys and girls? What's the name of the village where they're having this? What's the title of the book that the girl is holding? What color is Johnny the guitarist's hat? And how many puppets are shown in this part of the video? What's the occupation of the person who says absolutely excellent in the video, clip three. and today was uh, you know obviously very unique to line up and see the boys there and you know, normally i see them in an the environment obviously a racing track and here they are in the middle of the street uh you know practicing with all the gear set up and yeah it was good fun the pressure of the guys are under this year with uh, new pit stops so it was good for them to practice under under pressure a little bit with everyone watching and uh yeah, they did a great job oh, this morning here friday morning was an absolutely fantastic experience in the middle of london i don't think i've ever ever tried to stand in front of big ben ready for a pit stop before in my life and i don't think i will again after the crash of the weekend, everything's fine. It's a long way to go in the championship. Uh, there's many, many points uh, still to get, and many drivers can have good and bad weekends. Uh, you know, it's just a long way, long way to go. I enjoyed it. I think all the team did as well. You know, to uh, to be able to drive the F1 car down here was uh, a sensation. Okay, eleven. Where in the London is the film videoed? 12, what's the time showing on Big Ben when the driving starts? Number 13, what's the name of the Formula One driver in the video? And Number 14, what is the time of the pit stop? And number 15, how many tires is the Red Bull mechanic pushing in the video? This is not only a test of observation, it's also three tests for memory. Okay, now, let me go back to where are the answers to that? Down below on the yeah, are they down there? Set it? Yeah Okay. First is what color was the tie, for the snowman's tie? It was green. When did uh, Pixar make that? It was six years before they released their first film, so it was 1989. That's what it said in the opening. In 1989, six years before. Uh, what was the third item he used to try to break out of this, the uh, snow globe? It's a pneumatic drill. What was on the surfboard of, this, of the skeleton? It was mom. And fifth, how many how many items were there on the knickknack shelf? There were eight. Anybody get a hundred on that? No. Is that thing running? Yes, it's running. Stop. They'll go back on the shelf. Okay. Then the next group had to do with the um, the Punch and Judy puppet play. What was the name of the village? It was Heswall. Uh, what was the book that the little girl was looking at playing it cool? The unofficial biography of Coldplay, the name of the band. Uh, what color was the hat for the first guitarist was green? Uh, how many, um, how many puppets were there? Eleven. Anybody get that right? You did? I had ten. Missed one. And what was the occupation of the person who said absolutely excellent? He was the vicar. How do you know that? Because he had on a collar. Uh, then where did, uh, what was the location of the uh, Formula One race? It was Westminster, Parliament Square in the village of Westminster. Then what time did the race begin? Six o'clock. Who was the Formula One racer? Mark Weber. Uh, how long uh, before they had the pit stop? 3.2 seconds. And then how many tires were there brought out to the car? There were four. Anybody get 100%? Anybody get 90%? <laughs> Everybody think you're just looking at everything with blinders on, you left your sun you have your sunglasses on, you can't see anything. Good. That's that's the point, is that we need to open up our eyes, stop, slow down. That's one of the things I like about doing study in Greek and Hebrew, is it really slows me down. And the scriptures are so familiar that what happens is we read them too quickly and we don't really pay attention to the details of the text of the Scriptures so that we see what's, what's really happening and what's going on uh, in, inside the text. So how can we slow ourselves down? Well, we need to a- ask and answer the various questions. Um, I think I already went through that, this one. Yes. So... We need to do uh, about four things I have four circles here for how we do things are things to look for in observation now in your in your textbook in the at the opening, Hendrix lists um, uh, several things to look for and that is on page I think it's beginning of observation at the beginning or Where have I missed that? 38, maybe? No? It's just a quick. I don't think it's in the workbook. Maybe it is in the workbook. Right, it's on page 17 in the workbook, right on chapter 1, observing a passage of Scripture. Gives a nice list of basic questions. Who's the author of the passage? Whom is the author addressing? What's the most important term or concept in the in the passage? These are the basic questions I had up on the slides. And you can develop that in, in more. So one of the first things we wanted to look at, I have this set up in terms of just basically literary, a context and and historical cultural background. Then there's another set of questions related to uh, the words and terms that are used. and there's another set of questions. Uh, related to the grammar and the structure, and then another set of questions related to uh, the doctrine that's in the passage. So, in terms of the culture, we ask, what's the theme of the book? What is the theme of Acts? What's the theme of John? What's the theme of Matthew? What's the major theme? This gives us the broad idea. We're not talking about, um, a, a, you may hear somebody Oh, I had a great example this afternoon. Let me see if I can remember it. I can't remember it. Somebody may make a statement that uh, they they and you hear it and you think they're talking about a restaurant and they're talking about a movie. We've all had that kind of experience over here. Conversation. Somebody says something. You think they're talking about one thing and they're talking about something else context is so important so that's why we read more than just a verse or two we have to get the entire context and we have to look at what is the theme of the book so for example on Sunday morning we're studying Matthew the theme of Matthew has to do with presenting Jesus as the son of David so that's that's a theme he's the messiah then a second question is what's the argument of the book what's the argument of the book And an argument is not the same as the theme. An argument is expressed in terms of the theme and related to the theme in that what is the author trying to prove and demonstrate in what he is writing. It's argument in the sense of a lawyer going before a jury and trying to lay out a case for something. So what is the case that, that, uh, for example, that Matthew is making in the Gospel of Matthew. He is making a case that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and because he's the Messiah that entails a certain response to be his disciple and then to go make disciples. So that's his argument. Uh, And every book has a particular argument. How How do they structure the argument? What's the outline? This is what's helpful in a in a good study Bible is that you will have an outline given at the beginning of the book that is going to give you the basic structure of how um, that particular editor, whoever did the study Bible, sees the structure, uh the structure of the book. For example, Ryrie and Matthew has nine different divisions in the Gospel of Matthew. The person of the king in the first four chapters, the preaching of the king in uh, 5 through 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount, the proof of the king or the evidences that he's the Messiah in chapters 8 and 9, the program of the king, that is, and I disagree with where he breaks it down, but see, that comes from studying different things. What you can do in a book like Matthew is you can get out your Ryrie study Bible, you can get out your, your Thomas Nelson study Bible, you can get out your NIV study Bible, you can get out four or five different study Bibles, and you have four or five different outlines, and you lay out the major points next to each other and see how they break it down and why. Why do they say there's divisions here? Sometimes um, they'll make a division thematically, and so they make the division because uh, there's a topic shift. Others make it, will make a change. For example, there's a division here uh, in Matthew. Stan Two Saint comes along in his commentary on Matthew, and he says there's there's a certain grammatic there's, there's a certain grammatical structure and phrase that's used five times or six times through Matthew, and that's where it breaks the division. Every time uh, he uses that phrase, he's changing. The topic or the structure. So there are different reasons why they they structure their argument the way they do. They have to answer the question: What kind of book is it? Is it history? Is it law? Is it um, is it a letter? Is it poetry? Uh, what type of of literature is? What kind of a book is it? What's the occasion? Why is he writing it? First Corinthians, Paul writes because. They've asked him there were certain issues that were coming up in Corinth, and he needs to ask, answer those questions. There were certain problems that he needed to address. First uh, Thessalonians, there were some questions and issues about what happens when believers die, because wait a minute, we thought Jesus was coming back, but now people are dying, so what happens? So he's answering those questions. Romans, he's answering questions related to the righteousness of God. So what's the occasion? What's the purpose? And that's going to go back to helping us understand the theme and the argument of the book. What are the key issues in a particular book? When you're looking at a verse like Acts 1-8, what is the immediate context? What's the immediate context? The immediate context is Jesus' final statements to the disciples before he ascends to heaven. Who's he talking to and what's the background? Okay, that just orients us to culture and context. So what I've given you tonight for some basic questions to start asking when you're observing a passage, the questions on page 17 in the workbook and then questions in, uh, related to culture and context. So now I want to take the last five minutes and go to the workbook on page 19. And we're going to look at observing a verse in Psalm ninety three one. Come on, open. Okay, here we have New King James Version. We're going to go to Psalm 93 run 1. So we start off and we're going to ask certain questions now. Let's go just go to page 17 again. What are those questions? Who's the author of the passage? Who's writing Psalm 93? How do you find out? Hmm? How do you find out who's, the, who's who the author is in Psalm ninety-three? Go back to Psalm ninety? Hmm? Go back to Psalm ninety it starts four? No. No. Psalm ninety is written by Moses, but some some Psalms are not written. Or at least they're not attributed to anyone. Uh, earlier in the Psalms, they will say a Psalm of David, uh, a Psalm of Moses, a Psalm of Asaph. They'll indicate, and those those inscriptions are are part of the text in the Hebrew. They're not they're not something different. They're not an editor's note. They're 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 actually in the Hebrew text. That's verse one usually. So the new numbers in in the Hebrew Bible are different from the numbers in a. In your English Bible, so Psalm 93 is written by who? Hmm?
1: That's right, it doesn't
0: say. We don't know. And so, there's a lot of psalms that are not attributed. We don't know who wrote them. Uh, To whom is it written? Yeah, it's, it's written to be used as, as praise in the tabernacle service. But ha, who? Ha, what's another clue as to whom it's written? Verse two. Yeah, verse 2. There's a shift from a third person singular, the Lord reigns, he is clothed in majesty, to verse 2. Your throne is established from old, you are from everlasting. So there's a there's a shift here to a second person singular. So he shifts from a third person description of God to a first or, or to a second person description of God, where he directly uh, addresses God. Um, then what's a, a, another observation we can make here? Who's the author addressing? Um, he's it's written for use in the uh, worship in the temple, but it's addressing God. What's the most important term and or concept in the passage? Just looking at verse 1. Well, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Okay, what what terms would be significant? Okay, clothed. Where does it say sovereignty? Right, but that's in the background. That's part of what it's talking about. But before we get there, we have to identify what those key terms are. The Lord reigns. First thing he says, he's clothed. The Lord. Strength. Okay, clothed. And what's significant about the word clothed? Repeated. It's repeated. Yes, it's repeated. Um, he's girded himself. What does it mean to gird yourself? Oh. Oh. That's right. See, so you have two, two words that are actually, and it translates it right. There are two words that are the same, and then... There's another word, GERD, which is a synonym. So it's three times it's talking about putting, uh, God putting something on. Now we know that that's not to be taken literally, so it's clearly a figure of speech. And so that's something we have to talk about later on down the road is how we look at, come to understand some of these figures of speech and how how they are expressed. Um, So what are the verbs? Rains, clothed, girded, established, and moved. Um, there aren't any people or places we need to identify. We know who Yahweh is. What's significant about the name used for Yahweh? It's Yahweh all the way through. We don't have Elohim or Adonai. Right. Uh, it's his personal name emphasizing, always emphasizing his covenant relationship with Israel. In verse 1, are there, what, what, what it's being talked about, um, talked about uh, um, sovereignties in the background, what else is there? His, uh, his omnipotence, his majesty, his sovereignty, his power—all of those things are, are are present there. Now, anybody look up what words would you want to look up? Okay, you'd want to look up the word majesty, wouldn't you? Okay, now this is the kind of thing that makes logos kind of easy. Where did it go? We try it again. It should open. Right to that screen. Maybe it's going somewhere else. Oh, I don't know. Oh, it's over here. i got to figure out how to. I'll worry about that later. Majesty is impressed means impressive beauty, scale, or dignity. Second meaning for majesty is royal power. How many of you all thought of, ma- when you thought of majesty, you thought that it, it's a synonym for power? We think of it more in the sense of dignity, but it. A second meaning has to do with power. That's why it's important to look words up. You'll be amazed at what you'll learn about words and their meanings if you look them up in a dictionary. And so, what we've learned is that if this is this is talking about power, and it, the reference underneath a title given to a sovereign or a sovereign's wife or, or widow. So the emphasis is on power. It's related to authority and sovereignty, which. Certainly helps understand the uh, context here. The Lord reigns. This has to do with His authority, His sovereignty. He's clothed with majesty or power. Uh, the Lord is. Cl- then we have this repetition. The Lord is clothed. He's girded Himself. So this the third line is explaining the second line. He's girded Himself with strength. Strength is a synonym for majesty or power. Now. Then we look at the last line and the last line expresses something that his power did in relation to creation. He established the world so it can't be moved. What does it mean by being about being moved? That's right. It's stable. It's stable. It's it's not that it can't be moved. It moves all the time. It it it, it revolves on. I mean, it rotates on its axis. Revolves around the sun. Um, there's earthquakes. There's all kinds of movement. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that that it it uh, it's not subject to to destruction. It's not subject to going out of control or instability. In and then. Um, The next question is: Does this verse evoke any positive feelings from you? What what kind of feelings or emotions come as a result of reading this? Yes, security, uh, a sense of awe, a sense of stability. And I, I, I never would have thought of the next question, but I thought that was a good question. Could this verse or might this verse cause less positive emotions for some people? I think how some people might, might think about that. Okay. So what I want you to do next time is go to the n- number three on, on observing a verse. And work through that as an exercise. I want you to continue to read through James. And then I want you to look at James 1.19 and start writing out some observations. Try to write out fifteen observations, twenty five if you can, uh, related to verse nineteen. And remember some of those the the questions that we've got here as well as some of the questions I put up uh, earlier. That's why I had you start off reading through the whole book of James. What do you think? See, at this stage what happens is you make wrong guesses. Think about... Coming into, you're going to watch TV, you just want to unwind, you just want your brain to go go empty for a little while and unwind at the end of the day, and you come home, and it's about 6.20, so you're going to be 20 minutes into a TV show, and you turn on Seinfeld. And you're watching Seinfeld or some other show. What's going on? You have to make certain guesses as to what you think is happening, what you think the show is about. Now what happens? You go through a process. You something happens. You go, well, wait a minute. That's not what I thought it was. It must be about this. And the more you watch it, the more you sort of guess your way into figuring out what's happened before and what's going on. And you're figuring out what's happening. That's the same way here. You. You. you at this stage, we're looking at James, and at this stage, we may not have. You're just sort of making guesses as to what you think the theme is, what you think the book is, is all about. Don't rely too much on on whatever the study notes are, because mostly they're going to be wrong. Um, just what do you think? What are the things you're seeing as you're reading through uh, James? And start writing that down. But start with verse 19. Look at who wrote it, why did they write it, to whom are they writing, what's the context, what those kinds of things. Okay? And then for next time, according to the syllabus, I want you to read chapters 7 and 8 in Living by the Book. And I wrote on there, do observation exercises on John twenty 31. Don't do that. We'll come back to that later. Just work on James 1, uh, 119. That's what you're working on, not... Uh, not John 20, 20 We'll talk about that next time. Okay? Any questions? Anybody confused? It's just a matter of reading, writing down, what do you see, asking those questions, and, and looking it up. Okay? All right, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and help us as we study, to think, to reflect to pursue what we're looking at and uh, try to have a better understanding of what it is we're reading and what it means. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, where a study Bible is going to help you is it's going to tell you who wrote it and when they wrote it and who the audience was, things like that. So that's going to give you some information that you can use in answering some of those questions.